Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Well, good morning and welcome to the Wisdom of the Soul from Southern California. My name's Michael Benner, and this is a presentation of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And if you're here with us live, uh, that's great. We're going to do an opening meditation. Now, we do podcast this, but we edit out the Q&A, and I also pull out the meditation. So uh, join the live uh, Zoom class here on Sundays, if you can, uh, to get the whole thing. Or the YouTube, the video on the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School YouTube channel is unedited. So... You get the whole thing there, too. So uh, whether it's a podcast and available wherever you get podcasts, we're on all player apps and aggregators and directories, or um, the YouTube channel. But if possible, join us here live when you can. On YouTube, if you'll subscribe, uh, you'll get a notice every time a new class is posted. So subscribe, like, and uh, comment if you would. Uh, the podcast, you can leave a review which we'd appreciate on the Apple podcast. It's also a podcast uh, service called Pod Chaser that encourages reviews. Search for Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, not Wisdom of the Soul. This is the class, but the larger project, the school, is Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Google it. Uh, if there's a past show and you don't know Gosh, what was the number of that show? When did that show? Just Google Ageless Wisdom Mystery School and a keyword, and you might be surprised. They tend to pop up. Let's briefly review what we went over last week about the levels or layers of consciousness, and they were four in number. And we did them from the outside in, so number four was <laughs> we sort of did it backwards. The fourth level of consciousness is the human mind, our ability to think and feel, to problem solve, to make decisions, to do so consciously. The mind. The mind is everything. Notice we have medical doctors whose area of concern is the physical body. We have mental health specialists psychologists and psychiatrists and, to some extent, I guess, social workers. But when we talk about mental health, that includes thoughts and emotional feelings, doesn't it? For whatever reason, we don't really have a profession of emotional health doctors or healthcare professionals. So the emotions are sort of clustered with the thoughts as the mind. That's what the mind is. The mind, perhaps even better 
considered is consciousness. The mind is an extension, again, this fourth layer of consciousness itself. So I can have thoughts, even though I'm not very conscious of the thought process, or I can learn to be increasingly conscious of my thoughts, the ones that I deliberately and purposefully engender, and the intrusive thoughts that we talked about on a couple of occasions a few weeks ago, the task-unrelated thinking, the monkey mind, the jabber, roof brain chatter. That's <laughs> another phrase for it. The third level, somewhat below the mind, is sense and sensation. Your ability to see and hear and touch and smell and taste. Below that is the store or the warehouse where all the qualities, the forms, the uh, laws of physics, uh, ethics and values, the conscience that not only knows right from wrong and good from bad and <laughs> what you should be doing, not because an authority tells you, but because well-being is encouraging you to be virtuous and kind and loving. And those qualities are in the store along with, again, the laws of physics and that water is wet and fire burns and the skeleton nature, the scaffolding of physical reality, the, the fir tree beneath the Christmas tree, that kind of thing. Our bodies have a skeleton, but below the physical body and the physical skeleton are energy bodies. And I think it's uh, important to consider from time to time when you hear someone talk about auras or energy fields that these do not emanate from the physical body, as you might presume. But in fact, the physical body is an emanation of the energy field that appears around it to those with the eyes to see. Come on, it's the clay of the earth. That's what your physical body is. Uh, it's uh, the food that you've consumed that becomes clothing or the instrument that we use or the vehicle that gets us around from place to place. But consciousness is energy organized as uh, coherent fields and magnetic at that, attracting like repelling opposites. So if you're a good person, you're going to attract good people and find people who are selfish and self-centered to be somewhat repulsive. But if you're a selfish, arrogant, self-centered narcissist, guess who you're going to attract? Narcissists love narcissists. <laughs> and you'll repel the kind, loving, gentle person. And there's lots of in-between, but you get the polarities here. And then the first, most primary level or layer of consciousness is the Godhead, the source, the absolute, which shines according to the experience of many, like a inky black void that is 
intensely bright. Like staring into the sun, except that it's not white light, doesn't appear yellow. It's just empty, bright, bright blackness. The source of which consciousness arises and all things rise out of that, like waves on the ocean that we were just contemplating minutes ago. Just as a wave rises on the ocean and has a sense of independence and individuality and uniqueness, yet clearly is still the ocean. So too, everything in our lives rises up. The condition of energy that can manifest as a solid object, and then we see that clothing, and of course, given our level of evolution, we believe that object exists, unaware that it's our consciousness that gives it its existence. Next week, I hinted at this in the newsletter this week, a week from today, we're going to discuss a classic experiment from quantum physics called the double slit experiment, which is this amazing conclusion, this evidence, this experimental evidence that suggests that energy and matter are not only the same, but they coexist as waves and particles simultaneously. Not merely a photon, a little packet, energy packet of life, like a little Tide Pod. <laughs> That's what light is. It's made up of particles of light, little photons that act like energy, but in some cases act like little particles. Well, not only photons, but even electrons, which we say, well, those are particles. Those are little tiny bits of matter, right? And I seem to remember in high school learning that the electrons rotate around the nucleus of a molecule in these energy shells and that uh, they're counterbalanced by one proton and one neutron and Hydrogen has one of these, and helium two, and so and so as we go through the whole periodic table. But whoever told you that those electrons spinning in the shells, the energy shells, are actually flashing on and off. They disappear, and then they pop back into existence, and then they disappear again. The whole physical world is flashing like a light bulb, 60 times a second, but it's so fast you don't see the flashing. Like a movie, was it 26 frames per second in a, in a old school movie? But it looks like smooth motion to you. You don't see the 26 still frames, and that's reality. We, we see it as smooth and continuous, fact, it's flashing. Even consciousness flashes. I interviewed a, uh, a professor, actually, he's the chairman of the Department of Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona in Tucson. 
And uh, he's doing research into consciousness, some amazing research. And uh, trying to remember his name. I'll think of it in a minute. And he was saying that uh, they'd been studying Venus flytrap plants to discern the level of consciousness in a plant, particularly the Venus flytrap, which responds so immediately and directly to the stimulus of an insect uh, coming into the trap, and then, bam, it closes like another animal might and begins to digest, having swallowed the fly. Well, how conscious is that? And he said, well, it's sort of like taking a, sort of like consciousness taking a still picture once or twice a minute. That's the consciousness of a plant. It's aware of itself once or twice, three times maybe, per minute. It's just a flash. Whereas a human being has these flashes of consciousness at millions of times per second. And so we are more conscious, we are more aware than plants. And of course, in the middle are the animals, which are less aware than, well, less aware than most humans. I think some animals on occasion are more aware than some humans, but... You understand my point. Which animal are you talking about? A dolphin, a whale, a spider, a mosquito, your dogs and your cats? I've touched on self-awareness in animals in the past. May talk about it in the future again. Besides humans, there's really only eight animals that we know of that qualify as self-aware. And the standard for that is the ability to recognize their reflection in a mirror. Isn't that interesting? That happens in humans at about 18 months of age. That a baby realizes that reflection. The baby can see a reflection in the mirror before that. It just doesn't know that's me. Roughly uh, 18 months, that's where that ability forms in a human child. But there's only eight animals that are ever able to do that. And as you might expect, it's like uh, gorillas and bonobos and, oh, dolphins and whales and elephants, I think. And then the one really odd one is the crow or the magpie, which uh, these other animals have a cortex in their brain, that can, a cap, you know, that connects all parts of the brain to all other parts of the brain. The crow does not have that cortex, but it's still, God, they're incredibly smart, aren't they? Have you seen the YouTube videos of of crows and in, in the, the behavioral experiments that they have them do? It's quite remarkable. Self-awareness. So today, let's extend this into the states of consciousness, which is basically sleep, dreaming, and awake. There is sleep, there is dreaming, and there is awake. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about brain waves. We talked about the beta, alpha, theta, delta brain waves. I acknowledged there were also such things as gamma brain waves, very high frequency, but it's hard to talk about because in the 
25, 30 years, maybe more than 30 years, that brain researchers have been aware of these gamma waves, we can't really find a correlation. Don't really know what they correlate to. But the lower brain waves, we clearly know from 13 to about 40 cycles per second, the so-called beta range, that's awake and alert and, and aware and moving around in the world. And the more stimulated we are, the higher the brainwave frequency. So when you first wake up in the morning and trundle off to the kitchen to get the coffee going, you're probably in the upper teens or lower 20s. But by the time you get a jolt of coffee, you're in the low 30s and or upper 20s, low 30s, in terms of the frequency or the vibratory rate of the electromagnetic waves emanating from the brain. And then if you're really panicky and stressing out and completely overstimulated, you're going to be in the upper 30s. And you know the feeling. And that's when the adrenals start pumping norepinephrine into your body and cortisol. And that's when the amygdala tends to shut down the executive function of the prefrontal lobes and creativity and insight and understanding is destroyed and replaced by binary thinking, the either-or mentality. Boy, I hope you're hip to that. God, that can save you so much grief if you become aware of times when each of us is so stressed that we see everything in terms of black or white, all or nothing, right or wrong, and the consequential false assumption that if something is different, it must be opposite. And if anything is different, then it opposes us. Opposite, opposition, difference, opposing. Anything that's not me is a threat. See the way the brain poisons, the way the amygdala poisons the whole brain? To help you survive the danger. That's how we got here. That's how we've evolved for three million years. Our ancestors, the ones who got frightened the most easily <laughs> and lost the nuance and the creativity in their, in their imaginations, they're the ones that survived and they passed that hair trigger down to us. So, God, we're so easily terrified, so easily frightened. And this is the stage of evolution that we're at. It even speaks to the political divisiveness in the world. Uh, fear, the fear of each other and the fear of the unknown. And, you know, people grab Bibles and guns and, and cult leaders and do whatever they can to try to find some sense of belonging to something because you've only got two choices. <laughs> and you know you're the good side, so anything different must be the bad side. This is a pox on humanity. This is a curse. Fine for survival if you're in real danger, but it, it, it's not a lifestyle. The alpha brainwave levels below that corresponds to both a deeply relaxed wide awake state and a dreaming state. Alpha stands 
sort of between, I guess, it, well, in fact, this may be the best way to say it because it does stand between the beta state of wide awake that I just described and the theta state. So from the top down, 13 cycles per second and higher is beta, wide awake. But then coming down, uh, alpha is like 8 to 12, like 10 cycles plus or minus. And then theta, somewhat below that, would be like 4 to 8, right? 5 to 7, somewhere in there. And both alpha and theta are dreaming states. Usually when you meditate, you go from beta down into the somewhat slower alpha. And you know you're an alpha when the busyness of the monkey mind tends to fall away. Your thoughts begin to slow down. The gaps between the thoughts open and you just feel safer and more relaxed. That's theta. I mean, that's alpha. If you continue to go deeper with relaxation, perhaps even on your way to sleep, and you drop now below alpha into theta, this is a state associated with what's known as hypnagogic imagery. This is where you begin to visualize. And if you see others in alpha, whether they're meditating and visualizing or asleep dreaming and visualizing in those dreams, the eyelids will sometimes bounce. This is called a REM state for rapid eye movement. It's a good band to REM. That's what that comes from, the REM state. So we can be in that REM state of alpha and theta and be awake, though deeply relaxed. But that's also the same level we're in when we dream while asleep. And then delta is four cycles or less. Anything slower than four cycles is delta. And this is deep non-dream sleep. Now, hundreds and even thousands of years, literally thousands of years before brainwaves were ever discovered, the ancient rishis and adepts, the sages and gurus of time out of mind, said the same thing. And it's part of the wisdom traditions and the mystical traditions that are still taught today throughout the world, particularly in the East and Middle East cultures, but in the mystical cultures of uh, all philosophies and religions. There is an understanding that these are the three states. Deep sleep, non-dream sleep. The sleep and dreaming stage. And then the wide awake stage. A couple of points to consider, although I'm not going to dwell on this because I just don't have much to say about it. There's not much that can be said about it. But it merits some reflection. There are many, many teachers in Vedantic philosophy, the ancient Vedas of uh, India and the Far East, in shamanism all around the world, including the indigenous peoples of the Americas, who have said repeatedly 
that deep non-dream sleep in death is the same state. That when you sleep deeply and are not dreaming, you are effectively dead. So people say, well, what, what is dying like? What is it like to realize that you're dead? Um, well, it's like waking up is what it's like. Only you wake up and find out all of this was a dream. I love that little Stan Laurel uh, <laughs> from Laurel and Hardy. That's who Stan Laurel is. That quote I put in the newsletter. How did it go? I had a dream that I was awake and then I woke up and found out I was asleep. Yeah, uh, the corollary between deep non-dream sleep and death is something that is discussed over and over again. And you say, yeah, but it's not death because the body is still breathing and the brain waves are still indicating vitality and and the heart is still beating, and all the vitals look good. And, of course, there are so many experiences that we can have in deep sleep. There are, fortunately now, sleep study labs where all manner of sleep disorders are researched and treated. Night terrors, for example. So many of the abduction phenomena that we hear around the UFO stuff is really um, a function of sleep disorders. Uh, I won't say all of them. I don't know that to be the case. There's more that we don't know than what we do know in this whole field of aerial phenomena, unidentified aerial phenomena. I don't want to get into all of that, but a lot of it is sleep disorders. There's something called the old hag syndrome where people believe that they're awake, but they're in a twilight state, in a theta state, most likely, still asleep, but believing, I mean, lucid, in that you're aware of feeling, in this case, very frightened, as if, in fact, it often has racial overtones, that someone very threatening and very frightening, uh, like a... a some sort of, again, alien being. It could be, you know, to an American, an alien is somebody from South America. Uh, but they, they could be the greys or, you know, aliens from another place. They have these experiences. They're widely reported. You listen to George Norrie in the, any, any night of the week, you'll hear sleep disorders described as, uh, you know, some sort of uh, alien encounter. Sleep paralysis, this is something that I've suffered. It can be very frightening, uh, where you're awake enough that you make an attempt to move, to roll over, maybe to get out of bed, you're just paralyzed. You can't move. And that's a horrible feeling. And you try to yell out to somebody to help you, and you can't yell, you can't speak. And... Uh, then you try to throw your body one way or another. Uh, what researchers have found about this, I'll say, is that it almost always happens when you're sleeping on your back. 
So one of the treatments, if you've ever had uh, sleep paralysis on waking, is to do your best to sleep on your side or to sleep face down. But side sleeping, for whatever reason, seems to be a cure for that sleep paralysis. So, gosh, this is a huge field and sort of outside of our purview, at least today, to go any further into that. But just as we compare the deepest non-dream sleep to death and honor that the body has a vitality of its own and an innate and inherent intelligence of its own that, that keeps us vital and alive during those sleep states, it's the consciousness that fades in and out. We can also consider that the dreaming that we do every 90 minutes or so, most sleep cycles are a five or six minute dream every 90 minutes or so. And throughout the night, the dream period gets a little shorter and the length of the dream gets a little bit longer, but not to a great degree, only slightly. That when you wake up, why would that not also be a dream? And here's where the philosophies start to blend and intersect. And you go, oh, wait a minute. I've always heard these mystics say that uh, life is a dream. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. Life is but a dream. Or the mystic will say it's all an illusion or it's a delusion. It's a, an appearance of a reality that is only a projection of consciousness. And you say, well, that sounds like I'm dreaming when I'm awake. Well, why wouldn't you? And so I'm offering this not as solutions or answers to anything, but as ways of helping you to outline the research that you may wish to do. I'm not demanding that you do anything but you may wish to pursue this in reading of books and articles and abstracts, do your Google research. It's amazing how much information is available uh, to the casual Google user. And as Google learns that you're, <laughs> through its algorithms that you're interested in such things, it'll start pushing your results in that direction. You'll get better and better results. And those conspiracy theories you've been checking out, those will start to fall off your, or, or drop to the very page 40 on your search results, right? The more you research the things that you really are interested in that are really wonderful and, and illuminating and, and positive and life-affirming and uplifting, Google or whatever search engine you use, Safari or I don't know, the old one's still around, Alta Vista, Dogpile, we, we had a whole bunch of them. Uh, Microsoft has a new browser too. Um, the more you use those to look up this really interesting material, uh, the better results you'll get. So I just want you to think in terms of consciousness in all of these different ways, and even these two models are a bit much. Uh, the idea of consciousness as the source, the creator, the absolute or Godhead, 
emanating out through the store or warehouse of forms and names to our sense and sensation, and then to the mind, our thoughts, feelings, and intentional behavior, our health and well-being, our attitudes and our moods. And then this other model, the states of consciousness through which our awareness expresses, or I could say the states of awareness through which consciousness expresses itself. The sleep, non-dream sleep, the sleep and dreaming, which includes, in a sense, daydreaming, right? You can daydream intentionally using your imagination, which is really a waking state, deeply relaxed waking state. And then the corollaries, the brainwave corollaries of delta, deep non-dream sleep, theta, dreaming, also with awareness, a deep trance-like state associated in both cases with vivid imagery. Alpha, which is mild relaxation, any decent meditation will take you into alpha or just go sit outside for 10 minutes. Watch the birds and the butterflies, and uh, you'll be in alpha in no time, right? Or light a candle and just sit back and watch the candle dance. Do your best to think of nothing, but just watch the candle. Boy, you'll go into alpha right away. And then the wide awake state, where we live the vast majority of our lives, focused out on these objects and uh, struggling with a life that we believe is being done to us. <laughs> like uh, Alice through the looking glass. Like which side of the looking glass am I really on? Now, I'll just quickly touch on the powers of mind because it's already a few minutes after the top of the hour. The one model that I really think you'll benefit from understanding Conscious mind, unconscious mind, subconscious mind, pre-conscious mind. What are we talking about? Are these four different minds? If you don't mind. Uh, basically, there is one mind, and that's the all that is. There's one life. There's one mind. There is one of us here. It's a universe. One thing spinning around. One dance. That's the mind, the consciousness, that all things exist within. Not only is spirit in the world, in all things, divinity imminent, it's also transcendent. So the, I don't want to say the opposite. The other side, the obverse, is also true. Not only is divine spirit in everything, but everything is in the one. The one is in everything, and everything is in the one. That is panentheism, imminent and transcendent. Now, each of us as individuals incarnated into form as this physical body that we carry around, this, this vehicle, that, 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 uh, this instrument that we use to get from place to place in this world, so we get a piece of that mind, an aspect of the mind. The whole mind is available to us, and sometimes we're able to see more of it than at other times. You may have 
experiences of so-called ESP, uh, telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition. Uh, called a friend of mine yesterday. He said, damn, I can't believe it. I was just about to call you. We hadn't talked in probably six weeks. I believe him. I don't think he was BSing me. I, I think I think we really were on each other's mind. I just happened to make the call before he had a chance to. And I'm sure you've noticed this. And there are countless other examples that we won't explore today. All that ESP, that precognition, clairvoyance, and uh, oh, now they call it remote viewing, that's all explainable and completely understandable if you realize that your aspect of consciousness is just an extension or a fragment or an element of the whole. And even that consciousness is variable. Part of the mind that we call our own, my mind, is conscious. Most of it is not. So there's no level at which there's more than one mind. It's just how much of it do we have access to? And how much of the mind, the totality of the absolute of God, do we have access to? How much of our own mind do we have access to? Birthdays generally tend to be big days. How many of your birthdays can you even remember? How much of your life that at the time seemed so important and so dramatic or traumatic, so significant and meaningful, has faded to the point you can't even you can't even recall most of it. It's just not even available. Is it stored somewhere? Yeah, it's in your mind. It's in the one mind. But we don't have conscious access to it. So the consciousness is typically thought of as the tip of the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg may be huge. It may be enormous. Most of it is underwater. It's submerged. And so it is with the part of the mind that we call the individuated mind, uh, the conditioned mind of a given individual. Subconscious is just another word for unconscious. It's a word that is used commonly in everyday language. It's not really the scientific term. Technically, the subconscious is the unconscious. There is something in a lot of psychology, a lot of the literature about a preconscious mind, which is a, a, a set of information, some insight or understanding that is moving from the unconscious into conscious awareness, but it hasn't quite arrived. It's, it's like in the on-deck circle waiting to come up to bat. It's in the wings about to come out on stage, and you can feel it. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you can feel this thought or this feeling. Does a thought have a feeling? Or is it a feeling? This is where thoughts and feelings intersect and overlap so much. Thoughts can be accompanied by feelings. And of course, feelings can trigger thoughts. But there's a sense, there's something 
formulating that I can't quite put my finger on and I can't really get my brain around. I can't give it words yet, but I feel it. And then maybe it'll just pop into your awareness like that all of a sudden. Oh, my God, I just realized what it was. I just had a good idea. Thoughts that arrive full-blown. This is intuition. The term is not commonly used, but if you ever run into pre-conscious, that's what that's a reference to. Again, subconscious, that just means unconscious. So there's the unconscious mind, part of which is conscious, the tip of the iceberg. And the more stressed and tense we get, the less conscious we are of what's available in the unconscious. And as we learn to relax and even meditate and contemplate formally, it's as if we get greater conscious access to the storehouse of the unconscious mind. One way of thinking about this relationship of the conscious mind, the tip of the iceberg to the rest of it, the unconscious, is as if there's a valve and that stress, tension, anxiety, frustration, irritation, fear, by any name, tightens that valve, closes off the connection, makes us less conscious and more unconscious. When, on the other hand, we learn to breathe and let go and relax like a formal meditation or reflection exercise, that valve dilates, it opens. And so the flow of information between the conscious and the unconscious is greatly enhanced. And it's a two-way street. So by relaxing and opening the valve, not only is there less resistance to this enhanced flow of information, memory, insight, understanding, realization, epiphany coming from the unconscious into the conscious, but relaxation, because it opens that valve, also makes us more amenable to suggestion. We learn quicker. Uh, learning is accelerated. It takes fewer repetitions to understand something, fewer exposures to gaining insight beyond what you already know, and even remembering so that you can recall later and integrating that information. Comprehension is enhanced in, in both directions, you see. That's the primary benefit of relaxation. We lower the resistance to these two minds or two aspects of mind, conscious and unconscious, communicating. So we get more insight and understanding from the unconscious into the conscious. But we are also facilitating the ability of the conscious to guide and instruct, suggest, or even command the behavior of the unconscious mind. So if I sit here in normal consciousness, awake, alert, distracted, stressed out, and I try to lower my blood pressure with my willpower, I'm not going to be successful. But if I close my eyes and relax, breathe, let go, and visualize in my mind's eye, muscles relaxing, arteries dilating, I can significantly affect my blood pressure. And the same with memory. The harder I try to remember, the more it eludes me. You have tip of the tongue phenomena, just say I'll remember in a minute. And what happens a minute later? 
pops right into your head, you see. <laughs>